1: Legalizefreedom.com.
0: Greetings and welcome once again to legalizefreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat, and first up today, I'd like to reply to listeners who've said that they'd like to donate to the show, but they do not wish to use PayPal. I have PayPal on the website simply because it's easy, convenient and pretty much universal, although obviously I appreciate that some people have issues with it. So, if you'd like to donate by means other than PayPal, go to the About page at LegalizeFreedom.com, and there you'll find email contact details. Drop me a line and I'm sure we can come to some other arrangement. I'm happy to accept checks drawn on UK banks and, of course, well-concealed cash. Only about 1 in 10,000 listeners currently puts a tip in the jar, so any increase in that number would be most sincerely welcome. Moving on, my guest today is Dave McGowan, who joins us to discuss his book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and The Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. In the 1960s and early 1970s, California's Laurel Canyon was a magical place where a dizzying array of musicians congregated to create the soundtrack those turbulent times. Members of bands such as The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, The Monkees, The Beach Boys, The Eagles, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, Steppenwolf, Captain Beefheart, Alice Cooper and The Doors, along with singer-songwriters such as Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Carole King and Jackson Brown, lived, loved and jammed together in a seemingly idyllic community nestled in the Hollywood Hills. But there was a dark side to this pastoral scene. Many didn't make it out alive, and many of those deaths remain shrouded in mystery to this very day. Far more integrated into the scene than most would care to admit was convicted murderer and cult leader Charles Manson, along with his depraved entourage. Also floating about the periphery were various political operatives, up-and-coming politicians and intelligence personnel, the same sort of people who just happened to give birth to many of the rock stars populating the canyon and all of the canyon's colourful characters, rock stars, hippies, politicians and murderers, happily coexisted alongside a covert, some would say sinister, military installation. Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon is the very strange, but nevertheless true story of the dark underbelly of a hippie utopia. Hello and welcome Dave, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I haven't, haven't uh, really had too many opportunities to uh, to speak to a uh, UK audience, despite the fact that the book was actually published there. But of course, I'm in the US, and um, you know most of the radio stuff I've done has been uh, has been here. So I greatly appreciate a chance to uh, to reach a, uh, a different audience.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome. Now, the book you refer to is your book, of course, uh, Weird Scenes. Inside the Canyon, subtitle is Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and the Dark Heart, Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. Before we jump into that, tell listeners a bit about your background, how you became interested in this particular uh, area, right. and of course, you're, you're going to be a music fan, otherwise you wouldn't have written this book. So just how, you, you know, what your journey into music in the first place was.
1: Yeah, I am a lifelong music fan. Um, you know, I was alive during the period that's, you know, chronicled in the book, which is basically from say the mid sixties to the mid seventies, which was really the peak of the, uh, of the Laurel Canyon scene, the peak years. And, uh, but I was very young at the time. Uh, I was born in 1960, so I was just a lad when all of this stuff, uh, went down. But, you know, it was, uh, I was alive and well and, and living just literally just, you know, like 20 miles from, uh, from where this all happened. But, uh, unfortunately I was much too young to be aware of or involved in the scene. But, um, you know, I, I kind of came of age in the, uh, in the seventies, so to speak, but I was very much, uh, in tune with the, uh, the music of that earlier era and I always kind of felt like I was a, uh, I was a kind of a, a hippie, uh, that, that had the misfortune of being born a decade too late. Cause, you know, had I been born earlier and reached my teen years, uh, during that period, I, I absolutely would have been a part of that scene and, uh, you know, felt, felt, felt very much, uh, that that, you know, it was hugely influential. The music of that era, you know, we really provided the, the soundtrack to my formative years, so to speak. So uh, I've always been a big fan of that music in that whole era and the, and the scene that produced that music. And, um, but, uh, you know, m- most of, uh, most of my re- reading and writing is, is on much, much darker, uh, quote unquote conspiratorial type topics. And, uh, this one I really kind of fell into by, by accident, um, as, as is explained in the, uh, the preface to the book, um, <clears throat> I was, I was on vacation and, uh, really kind of wanted to escape from all the insanity, you know, that, that occupies my, my day to day life. And, uh, I kind of viewed this as, 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 a, as an opportunity to short, sort of, uh, just tune out all of the, the madness and, uh, just you know, have a nice, enjoyable vacation read that would conjure up all of these fond memories of uh, of my childhood and all these great songs that that helped shape that childhood and adolescence. And instead, as I was you know reading through this book, which was Michael Walker's Laurel Canyon, which was a very, a very mainstream treatment of uh, of the scene, all these alarm bells kept going off. You know, it was just just uh, there was just just all these, you know, ward, these, uh, signals going off left and right telling me that there was, you know, far more to the story than what was being told in the book. And, uh, so I ended up just, uh, diving headlong into that whole scene and, uh, just devouring everything that I could find that had been written about it in books and magazines and web posts and newspaper articles and just everything I could get my hands on. And, uh, slowly bit by bit pieced together sort of a alternative version, uh that's quite at odds with the the mainstream version of uh you know how that how that scene played out and how it came to be and and uh you know what kind of influence it wielded and whatnot. The time
0: period you mention, if people are thinking about anything at all, they'll be thinking Summer of Love, Flowers in Their Hair, War pro- anti War protests, all the rest of it. And they're probably thinking San Francisco. But Laurel Canyon is in California and what we're really talking about here is in and around LA. So set the scene for us basically however you care to in terms of geography or the background, you know, where these people came from because of course we're not talking about that many LA natives here. So just for people who aren't familiar just take us forget San Francisco. Let's head to LA and just set it out for us.
1: Yeah, you know, that's that's one of the things that, that that first fascinated me about this story is that um even the mainstream version is not that well known and as you say when anytime uh anytime conversation turns to the 60s and you know hippies and flower children and that whole uh you know countercultural movement that was going on um you know and it was it was a very uh a very eventful decade to say the least you know you you had the whole hippie movement and the flower children and all this music and you had the, the black panther movement and women's rights movement and the anti-war movement and just all kinds of uh people pushing for for social change in various ways and and uh, you had the inner cities exploding in riots you know in watson detroit and whatnot and you had, uh, you had, you had very beloved leaders being picked off left and right, uh, you know, the Kennedy brothers and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and, um, it was just, you know, this, it was just a very, uh, just a, uh, a, a decade that was just, uh, really unlike any other and, uh, the first, first decade of my, my existence and, um, so, so, uh, very fascinating to me, but, uh, when the discussion, anytime the discussion comes up of that, you know, ninety nine percent of people, their minds are immediately going to hate Ashbury up in San Francisco, which is is largely viewed as the uh, the birthplace and really the uh, sort of the cultural center of that whole hippie movement. And uh, interestingly enough, um, the reality is that it actually began right right down here in L.A. a couple of years before. Um, the uh, parallel scene up in San Francisco and uh, the scene down here pr- produced far more of the music and and uh, far more, you know, Im- influential, uh, you know, spokesperson so to speak for for that youth generation than did uh San Francisco and uh you know, uh it was here that the uh what became known as the hippies really first began as far as the hairstyles and the clothing styles and the attitude and you know, that whole that whole look and feel that, that, uh, would eventually become known as hippies, uh, all actually started in LA. And, um, and, uh, you strangely enough, uh, very, very few people, even native Angelenos are, are aware of that. And, um, it, it all happened in, in, uh, one little isolated canyon in the Hollywood Hills, which is a, uh, <coughs> A small, uh, mountain range that separates the, uh, the west side of LA from the San Fernando Valley. And, uh, there's a number of, of canyons that snake through there that provide uh, access, you know, from, from the city into the valley. And Laurel Canyon was, was one of those and, uh, <coughs> very kind of an isolated, uh, very isolated geographically there's kind of really only one main road going through there so kind of only one way in and out and uh it has a completely different look and feel than the rest of la which is you know mostly concrete asphalt and glass uh whereas laurel canyon is is very heavily wooded and and very it's got a very rustic kind of a country feel to it and um so it's this uh, very kind of unique and and uh, you know socially and geographically isolated uh, neighborhood in LA that uh for for about the 10-year period there from the mid 60s to the mid 70s just became the locus of this this uh the whole uh, music and, and countercultural movement and just produced a just a staggering number of bands and uh, singer-songwriters that, that poured out of there in, in a very short amount of time. Everyone from, uh, I, I always leave out like half of them because there's so many, but uh, you had The Doors, you had Arthur Lee and Love, The Mamas and the Papas, The Turtles, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, uh, John Kane Steppenwolf. Uh, later on, you had Crosby, Stills and Nash, The Eagles, um, you had a whole bunch of singer-songwriters, James Taylor, Carol King, uh, Judy Sill, uh, Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell, uh, just Randy Newman, and just, just, a just an amazing array of, uh, musical talent, people that were destined to become these superstars, you know, many of whom are still these larger than life, uh, icons, uh, to this day, you know, people like Jim Morrison and, and, uh, you know, various others, Frank Zappa and David Crosby and Stephen Stills and, you know, just on and on and on. Um, just, just this amazing array of, uh, of talent that, that sort of spontaneously gathered there. And, uh, and produced this this uh, just massive body of of, of uh, musical work, and um, and really kind of emerged as sort of the spokesman and the leaders of of that uh, that whole hippie uh, the whole '60s uh, you know youth uh, countercultural movement.
0: As you say, you mentioned a few of the names there. I mentioned a few others in my introduction. We, there's no way we can begin to explore all these individual stories, but we will get to some of the more. Interesting characters later on. For now, maybe a place to start for me, what well, the first thing that piqued my interest and in kind of like, hmm, what's going on here is the family backgrounds of so many of these people. I mean, the whole, one of the whole points about your book is drawing together strands of coincidence and saying, look, this is, there's something going on here, or if there isn't, there probably should be, because statistically, what are the odds? So, Tell folks a little bit about what you turned up when you started looking into the, the backgrounds, family backgrounds of a lot of these people.
1: To an amazing uh, degree, uh, the the uh, so many of these people, particularly the ones who emerged as as sort of the frontmen for the band or, or as the the biggest stars that came out of the bands, uh, seem to come to, from an, to an overwhelming degree from a from families that are. Either career military or or uh, military intelligence. Um, just it's it's uh, it's really mind boggling, <laughs> really, how many of them you know. Uh, beginning with Jim Morrison, who was the son of a of a Navy admiral, a very high ranking Navy admiral, and and not just any navy admiral but the one who was a very much a key figure in uh what became known as the Tonkin Gulf incident which was when uh US uh, warships patrolling the Gulf of Tonkin uh, supposedly came under fire from uh, North Vietnamese troops and and uh, which really uh, provided the the catalyst for for the massive escalation of the Vietnam War and led immediately to the passing of the, uh, Tonkin Gulf resolution and the introduction of, uh, ground troops into that quagmire, which then ultimately resulted in the deaths of some 60,000 Americans and, and untold millions of Vietnamese and Cambodians and Laotians and just laid waste to, uh, (coughs) to that entire part of the world pretty much. And, um, the Tonkin Gulf incident and the uh, Tonkin Gulf resolution were, were the key uh, the key points that, that that really got that that conflict going. And uh, Jim Morrison's father was the commander of the ships involved in that incident, and therefore was a very much a key participant in uh, sort of choreographing that whole incident that that led to this massive ex- escalation of the war and um, and, and and that happened like virtually simultaneously with his son emerging out of Laurel Canyon onto Sunset Strip as this sort of larger than life icon of the anti-war crowd. So you had this very curious, uh, very curious, uh, you know, juxtaposition here of the the father uh, being one of the main people involved in in really getting the ball rolling on the war at the same time that the sun is, is emerging on the scene as the, uh, (laughs) as one, as one of the icons of the anti-war generation. And, uh, and that pattern just follows, you know, right down the line, uh, Frank Zappa's father was a chemical warfare engineer originally working out of the Edgewood arsenal, the infamous Edgewood arsenal. And, uh, Mm um, And as we know, there was there was a considerable amount of chemical warfare going on in Vietnam, although it was not labeled as such. But you know, we we just dumped untold tons of you know napalm and Agent Orange and white phosphorus and every other every other kind of thing on those poor people. And and uh, you know, here here was uh, here was another icon of the anti-war crowd whose father was was very likely instrumental in. in you know, coming up with, uh, all, all those, uh, weapon systems and, 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 uh, you know, and just right on down the line, you know, John Phillips, you know, same kind of background. He comes He his, uh, his father was a career, uh, Marine Corps officer. And, um, not only that, but his mother, his sister and his first wife were all career employees of the defense department so i mean everyone in his family pretty much he was just surrounded uh by military and intelligence personnel and uh you know david crosby his father as well stephen stills you know as as you go through the list it's very hard to find someone who emerged as, as as one of the bigger biggest stars of that scene that the names that endure to this day uh who doesn't who did not uh, come from that family background um it's just it, it's amazing really <laughs> the deeper you get into it uh you know Jackson Brown was was born on a, a military base in in uh ger- in uh post germany <laughs> Uh, all three guys from the band America were, uh, were Air Force brats and per- first met and got together on an uh, Air Force base where all of their officer fathers were stationed and, um, just, just on and on and on. It's, it's just, it's remarkable really how many of them fit that pattern. And, you know, I mean, if, if it's just a few here and there, you can, you can write it off as a coincidence or as a lot of people, uh, tend to want to do. Um, they kind of view it a, as sort of a natural reaction from these people a, in, in terms of uh, rebelling against, you know, uh, I've, I've had a lot of people say, well, you know, doesn't that make perfect sense that uh, <coughs> these would be the first people to rebel against their, you know, the values of their parents? And and there is some merit to that, but when you look down the list and, and see just how many of of them there are that fit that pattern, and how few fall outside the pattern, you know, at some point it just it becomes a little bit much for me to just write off it as coincidence or, or you know a natural uh, rebellion by these by these kids, and because um, I mean we're talking about a time. You know, in, in the late, you know, mid to late '60s, where every kid in the country wanted to pick up a guitar and grow out his hair and and front a rock band. You know, I mean, it was just uh, it was just in the spirit of the times. And of course, you know, not everyone has the talent to do that, but you know, a certain percentage of people do. And, and the question then becomes, you know, were these military, all these military brats, were they the only ones who had the the talent to? <laughs> To make it, or were they just the ones who the industry chose to, you know, sign and, and promote into superstardom? And to me, it's got to be the latter, because this is very hard for me to believe that, you know, that it was only the kids from that background who just happened to, you know, have that, the musical chops to, to make it uh, to that level of stardom.
0: And also as speaking as a, an ex musician myself, and also I've, I've got ears, as you pointed out, a lot of these guys weren't that good. I mean, yeah, you look at someone like Frank Zappa is phenomenally good, but mm-hmm. a lot of these uh, guys were like really sloppy. And um, we'll come on to a bit more about that later, but it's not at all obvious that these are the people that should have been selected if you were a, you know, record company chief.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, a lot of the bands had a very sort of contrived look, you know, nature. Um, more, more like they were cast than just sort of, you know, a bunch of guys who shared a musical vision that came together to form a band. Uh, you know, the first band out of the gate, the birds was, pro, you know, possibly the most obvious where, uh, two of the guys, had had literally never played their instruments before uh, the Chris Hillman who was hired as the bass player was a uh, a bluegrass mandolin player and um, the guy hired to play drums what was his name uh, Clark uh, michael clark he'd never never played the drums in his life I think he he'd played the bongo drums, but never you know never actually held a <laughs> set of drumsticks in his hand. <laughs> And yet, these were the guys who were you know selected to provide the entire rhythm section of what was the very first uh folk rock band, the band that really set off this whole folk rock revolution and pioneered that the the sound of uh you know electrifying the the songs of uh, people like Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and whatnot and uh you know. It's, it's just, it hardly, it hardly seems like a grassroots sort of a a coming together of, of, you know, of people who shared a musical vision. You know, I mean, the way you normally picture a band coming together, it wasn't really like that at all. It was, you know, you had one guy in the band who was actually a a skilled musician, which was uh, Roger McGuinn, the lead guitarist. And then the entire rhythm section had never played their instruments before and uh Gene Clark and and uh David Crosby were you know, could barely play the guitar. Um, you know, they're they so consequently all of their parts other than McGuinn's in the studio were played by studio musicians, you know, just like the monkeys did it, you know. So um yeah, in a in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the these bands were uh very uh Millie Vanilli-ish, you know, (laughs) um, yeah, they, you know, they, they were, they were chosen for their look more so than, than, and some of them did, you know, ultimately develop, uh, musical ability over the years, but, um, initially at least, you know, I mean, these, these were people who were kind of being cast, which again raises the question of, you know, why these particular people, uh, you know, there were, there were talented musicians to be had, you know, but, uh, but instead they, they decided to, to, you know, go with, uh, with people who literally had never picked up their instruments before. So, um, yeah, you know, you, you, you add that to the, to the, to the, the interesting family background that, that some, a lot of these people had. And it really raises the question of, you know, why them? Why, why did they? Why were they chosen to uh, become these huge uh, international stars?
0: We mentioned earlier about most of these people, if not all of them, not being LA natives, yet they all descend on LA, which was not a music scene hub in the US at that point. And not only do they descend on LA, but they de- it's not even downtown LA. You know, it's this, as you say, leafy suburb. And what it all reminded me of And you talk about this in the book, how they all seem to come from all these different places. It was almost like, and this is just my own silly imagination running away, but it was almost like a load of sleepers that had been activated with a code word or something. Now it was the time to go to L.A. Someone in the book says, you know, we went over there like lemmings.
1: Yeah, Neil, Neil Young was quoted as saying, "Yeah, he said we we didn't we didn't know why we were going. We just all went like lemmings. I mean, he literally, yeah, he literally said that 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 uh, they didn't, you know, yeah, we were just, you know, <laughs> the Pied Piper was calling. Um, yeah, it was very odd because uh, you know, LA was not known as a main hub of music. At the, you know, it is now." And that's largely because of Laurel Canyon. That's, uh, you know, one thing that people don't, don't really understand. You know, I mean, to, to people now looking back, they say, well, why not come to LA? You know, this is where you come to be a a star in the music field. But that, that wasn't really the case in those days. You know, there were, there were three main hubs. Detroit was kind of the the hub of the Motown sound and, and Nashville was the uh, country music hub and New York. Was actually the hub of popular music and, uh, you know, LA was just sort of, uh, and also ran. And, um, so there was no real compelling reason for these people to gather in, in LA at that time and gather so quickly, you know, I mean, just literally within like a year or two, uh, there was just dozens of acts spilling out of Laurel Canyon. And, uh, <clears throat> and again, yeah, there were, there was no, um, no particular reason for that to hap- for them to come to LA at all, and certainly not to all congregate in this one little sort of semi-remote, uh, you know, rustic canyon perched above LA, uh, you know, no, no real compelling reason at all for that to happen, and yet it did. And, uh, and they all arrived nearly simultaneously, and, and, uh, and all playing, you know, very similar types of music, uh, yeah, it was quite extraordinary, really, the way the the with the speed with which it came together, and uh, you know the fact that all of these all of these people just came from all from literally all over the country, and in some cases from around the world. Quite a few came from Canada. Uh, a couple of people from Steppenwolf came all the way from uh, Germany, and uh, all all uh, all arriving in in LA virtually simultaneously. With within you know, like I say, within like a couple of year period, they all just converged there and uh, very quickly formed bands and and (laughs) very quickly were given contracts and provided with instruments and recording space, studio space. And uh, just with remarkable speed, this all came together and all of these clubs started popping up like mushrooms all along Sunset Boulevard. So, you know, I mean, as quickly as these bands were forming, they suddenly had all these venues to play at and uh, it was just, remarkable uh just how quickly and and well coordinated this whole effort seems to have been
0: another interesting wrinkle for me is that in the laurel canyon facility was the lookout mountain laboratory this bizarre military installation that was just one of those moments it was like what you know taken against the background everything we've been talking about
1: yeah, that was just beyond bizarre, the fact that, uh, yeah, right right there nestled in the middle of this, uh, you know, the world's first and largest hippie commune was a very, very highly classified top secret uh, Air Force intelligence installation known as Lookout Mountain Laboratories that was uh, in operation at least through 1969 officially and by some accounts well beyond that. And so, uh, so yeah, you had this, this fully functioning covert Air Force facility right there in the middle of all of this, uh, you know, budding, uh, hippie slash flower children scene, uh, which again is, <laughs> doesn't quite seem to fit, you know, and, And, you know, again, it raises the question, why is, why did all these people come not just to LA, but to this one specific neighborhood that just happened, just happened to be home to this top secret military installation, you know, and all of these people coming. From a largely military and intelligence background, just to this you know uh this this certain neighborhood in Los Angeles that happens to house a military installation and then on top of that, you had various other military and and political and uh up and coming political figures um bopping around in Laurel Canyon you had you had both the, the future governor and lieutenant governor of the state Jerry Brown and and Mike Curb which I kept Jerry Brown is still our governor to this day as we speak which is just amazing but uh anyways you had uh you know Jerry Brown and Mike Curb you had uh you had one of the guiding lights of the Rand Corporation who had a home in uh, Laurel Canyon at the time where he was grooming Uh, all of these followers who would later become what became known as the, uh, the neocon cabal, the project for American, uh, new American century group. Uh, they were there camping out in Laurel Canyon. Uh, you had this male prostitution ring, which when it was busted, some of the, uh, operatives there claimed that their clientele included very high ranking, uh, government and law enforcement uh, figures, including J. Edgar Hoover, you know, (laughs) so uh, it was a very curious mix of people, to say the least, you know, you have this, this, as I said before, this sort of geographically isolated uh, and very, you know, fairly small neighborhood that had this strange mix of musicians, many of whom came from a military or military intelligence background co-mingling around this Air Force installation and with all of these up-and-coming political figures or already established political figures, uh, all all you know, grouped together in this one small location that just happened to become the birthplace of the hippie and flower child movements. So, and- I mean, that's a whole lot to write off as coincidence you know to me, to my mind anyway
0: yeah and of course this was around a time when music was starting to get political and a lot of people will associate a lot of the artists that we're talking about here and other figures as well as you mentioned as being synonymous with the anti-war movement of course you know vietnam going on around this time and that was very unpopular with a lot of people but as it turns out The anti-war movement were up and running, thank you very much, before all this hippie thing started. And in fact, it seems that some of the established anti-war people, if I can call them established, you know what I mean, were quite hostile to the hippie thing because at at the very least, it was kind of, they were aware of the fact it might discredit them somehow with uh, the general population um, or even media that might have been sympathetic towards them. And for me, that's very interesting because in people's minds, it's like, these were the flower children rebelling against the war, but then you have this anti-war movement already up and running, who are kind of like, "Oh, can you please not do that?" You know, we're we're fine, thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I uh, that was another thing that that uh, I found fascinating, and and another, uh, you know, one another one of the big misconceptions that that most people have, including me, you know, until recently. That you know, the first one being that the hippie movement. Uh, was actually a product of San francisco when it was in fact a, a product initially of l a that that being the the one main misconception and the the other one being that people almost universally these days uh equate the anti war movement and the hippies you know as as one and the same the hippies uh rep you know uh to most people are the face of the anti war movement of the sixties and um As you were saying, uh, yeah, that, that, that wasn't initially the case. Uh, it actually began, (coughs) the anti-war movement actually began on college campuses and, and was being led by very, very mainstream, very clean cut, you know, uh, college professors and their equally, you know, clean cut collegiate, uh, students. And then suddenly the hippies came along and provided a whole new face to the anti-movement, which was, a face that was completely foreign to mainstream America, you know, to, uh, to the heartland, so to speak. You had these people with these crazy hairstyles and clothing styles preaching about, you know, free love and, and open drug use and, um, you know, listening to this, uh, crazy music and, you know, inventing their own lingo and, um, you know, and like I say, I grew up very much admiring that whole scene and wishing that I had been a part of it. But at the same time, I can see how that would be very, you know, a very, <laughs> a very offensive face to put on the anti-war movement for many Americans at that time, you know, just coming out of the very conservative uh, 50s and, and uh, suddenly you have these, these people just, you know, looking like they, they might as well be from Mars and um you know that uh, to me that uh seems very much like a deliberate strategy to put a to put the most offensive face possible on the anti-war movement and it was obviously very successful because you know as as i said uh, to this day people equate the hippies with the anti-war movement and but that was not the case initially and some of the initial leaders of the anti-war movement were, as you mentioned, were none too happy when all of these, uh, and there were even, there were, there were suspicions then that this might have been some kind of an, you know, there were people, there were quotes from people saying, where, where are these people coming from? Is this some kind of a, you know, intelligence operation? Where, 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 where are these hippies coming from? And so, yeah, there are, there are legitimate questions to be asked about. About just, you know, just how effective the, the hippies were in, and, and again, another thing is, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's very commonly believed that the hippies actually succeeded in, in ending the war. But the reality is that it drug on, uh, for many, many years beyond when the, when the hippies emerged on the scene. And, you know, even after four students were gunned down in, at Kent State in like 1970, it still drug on. For, for a number of years. So, to my mind, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing that the hippies really uh, ended the war. And um, so, you know, yeah, it, it appears to me, at least, that the the hippies really subverted what could have been a very, very effective and much more popular with, with uh, you know, mainstream America, uh, an anti-war movement that was, uh, you know, much more effective and, and much more popular across the broader spectrum had the hippies not come along when they did yeah from a certain
0: angle it starts to look a lot like controlled opposition and of course we yeah. see, we've seen a lot of that since then we see a lot of it today of course there was never there's never been more war than there is now as far as i can see and all around you see uh, groups popping uh, yeah. up you know turning uh, a- protest violent and what have you
1: I was gonna say it's amazing how effectively uh yeah any any kind of anti-war movement uh I mean to this day yeah I mean you would think that the college campuses would just be exploding across the country you know I mean there's certainly no shortage of wars to oppose and no shortage of domestic policies to oppose either you know the mil the massive militarization of the police and the rise of the surveillance state and I mean, there's any number of issues that kids on campuses should be up in arms about, but you go onto a college campus these days, and there's no hint of any political activism or anti-war sen- sentiment, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it seems to have had a lasting impact uh, to this day. That, uh, I mean, there had there has not been a meaningful anti-war movement, uh, you know, since the uh, the mid '60s.
0: Was it the drummer in Spinal Tap who said, "As long as there's the." Uh- The sex and drugs, I can live without the rock and roll. (laughs) Besides the rock and roll, in the tale that you set out, there's a lot of sex, a lot of drugs. Now, to comment on the the latter, specifically, there seems to be mountains of cocaine. And the first thing that I thought was, well, that's not really a hippie drug, is it? That's the sort of thing that you know you think of bankers and politicians and business people doing, you know, off the the top gold-plated toilet seats or whatever, and. People can do whatever they want. I'm a libertarian, you know, take whatever drugs you want whenever you want. Enjoy yourself. Try not to hurt anyone, you know. But it struck me that cocaine does unpleasant things to a lot of people. You know, it's, we've got a saying in Ireland, you know, when the, the spirit goes in, the truth comes out and drugs tend to amplify who you already are. And, and reading some of the tales in your book, it's, it's really unpleasant. You know, it's not uh, some people in, you know, enjoying a joint or a, an LSD trip. A lot of it is just mountains of coke. And from then we get on to the sexual element in all this. And to say it gets sorted and seedy would be an understatement. And you can't get through a page of your book virtually without some of this coming up. You know, drugs and sex or some unpleasant, frankly, combination of the two.
1: Yeah, the, uh, you know, the image of the pot smoking hippie, that didn't, that didn't really last that long. And, uh, bef- before long at all, there was just a blizzard of cocaine blowing through Laurel Canyon. And, uh, yeah, the, 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 the drugs quickly turned from, from a, you know, the communal feel good, uh, you know, pot thing to, uh, much harder and more dangerous and personality altering drugs. And the same thing happened in the hate. Um, you know, before long you, you had, uh, you know, meth and pills and, and, uh, and much, much more dangerous hallucinogens like DMT and STP and just all kinds of stuff just flooding the streets. And, and, you know, what, what began as, you know, peace and love and past the joint, uh, very quickly morphed into a, a much, much darker and more dangerous and, and, uh, very grim scene. To say- the least
0: perhaps we should say a word about a few of the personalities as i say we've talked about a couple of dozen between us there are i don't know how many in total people you've talked about but there's a lot we talked about frank zappa yeah. earlier and he was a very influential character yeah. uh, certainly musically he has been uh, over the years uh, well you know before he passed away but you know his music lives on in a way that uh, some of the characters from this tale their music hasn't really but when you read Certainly the version of his life that you document, it's quite dark and disturbing. Never mind his family background. It's quite dark and disturbing compared to how people might imagine him just as a, you know, as a virtuoso, super creative, you know, uh, boundary breaking guy.
1: Yeah. He, uh, he's very authoritarian, very, um, I mean, uh, you know, people people that worked with him uh, tended to admire his talent, but found him uh, all but impossible to work with. And uh, you know, he would fire people from his band left and right, and uh, just very demanding, very, very, um, very much of a perfectionist, very much of an authoritarian, wanted things done his way, and um, and, and just spent a lot. Uh, tended to isolate himself, uh, even from his family. Uh, you know, he wasn't, wasn't much of a family man to say the least. And, um, yeah, he just doesn't, doesn't really fit the image of the, uh, you know, the long haired, uh, free thinking hippie so much, you know, he, uh, he definitely had a, had a much different uh, personality uh to say the least than than what we would expect uh you know f- from the leaders of the youth movement of that time and and he certainly was not alone uh Arthur Lee was was also uh regarded as, as quite an authoritarian figure uh Stephen Stills also who who was uh, nicknamed the Sarge due to his uh military bearing and and very authoritarian manner and these, these were people who were very, very talented, multi-talented, you know, stills, Zappa, and, and Lee, all of them, I mean, as, as songwriters, musicians, vo, you know, vocalists, well, Frank Zappa, not a vocalist, but, uh, uh, you know, producers, arrangers, uh, just, you know, they could, they, they wore all the hats and did so very well, multi-instrumentalists, and, uh, and, you know, they did what they did very well, but they uh they were very, very controlling and and uh you know, very authoritarian in their bearing, which was seemed to have been uh, not all that uncommon. You know, John Kay with Steppenwolf uh fit fit that pattern as well and, and all these guys would would uh you know, like routinely just fire you know, pretty much fire their band members at will and uh you know just just wanted wanted absolute control over uh over 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 everything uh captain beefheart really i mean he he took that to to extremes really and literally kept his band like imprisoned in a house and uh you know making them work for for uh peanuts and it's just so uh yeah if you if you, if you look uh you really look into, into the you know the lifestyles, not just, you know not just the family backgrounds, which are you know odd enough, but the uh, the lifestyles of these people. It's just it's just wildly out of sync with the whole peace, love, and understanding vibe that we're you know that that we, we think of when we think of the '60s and, and the the hippie counterculture.
0: I really enjoyed Captain Beefheart's music uh, when I first disco- yeah. discovered it. Back when I was a student, which was like in the early '90s, but reading—I've never
1: really gotten it. I mean, it's something you either get or you don't. I guess it's, uh, yeah. I mean, to some people, it's brilliant. To other people, it's uh, just—I don't know how to describe it. You got to listen to it for for yourself, I suppose. But anyway, go ahead. No,
0: I just think I like—I like surreal music, and I just liked his vocal delivery and his, you know, the really fucked up lyrics. But yeah, it was really disturbing to read about. I think it was Trout Mass Replica that you talk about them being barricaded in this house with you know, blacked out windows and everything else. So that was kind of like, okay, you know, another perception warped forever of someone you thought yeah, you
1: knew. Just bizarre. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this is a, this is an album that's you know regarded as a classic uh, regularly to this day appear you know anytime you see a list like in rolling stone or whatever the hundred greatest rock albums of all time trout mask replica inevitably uh turns up there and uh you know i mean people just assume that it was recorded in a traditional way (laughs) you know you go into a studio but no it was actually done in in a home with the that was like a prison basically blacked out windows and and the People were, uh, you know, they were, they were made to work long hours. They were deprived of sleep, deprived of food, deprived of the ability to use the bathroom at times. Um, you know, basically held as prisoners. And, uh, according to most of them, they, they, uh, they were never, never really paid for their efforts and, and received no credit, even though it was a collaborative effort that, that was put together, but, you know, through this, Group effort in the home, uh, Beefheart took all, sole credit as, uh, you know, a composer and arranger and, you know, everything else. And, um, and kept all the royalties pretty much to himself. So, I mean, he, he basically used his band as literally like slave labor, like imprisoned slave labor. Um, the stories are just, just extraordinary. I mean, how badly these people were treated in the process of making what, what is, you know, today regarded as, as one of the greatest rock albums of all time. But, uh, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of pain involved in, from a lot of people in, uh, in producing that album.
0: Well, there's a great little, um, alleged anecdote that you include in the book, which I'm going to save. For the next time, I'm at a party and I'm suddenly find myself stuck for something to say. Apparently, um, Captain Beefheart sold a vacuum cleaner to Aldous Huxley. I did enjoy that.
1: That's what he claimed. Yeah, he during his uh, early years as a uh, you know, his, his pre-discovery years as a um, a traveling uh, door-to-door salesman, he claimed to have sold a vacuum cleaner to Aldous Huxley not long before his death. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, yeah, and Beefheart B- was a uh a Zappa discovery basically. Zappa put a lot of strange characters on the map um through his uh you know, his own music was not very mainstream and to this day doesn't get much radio play, but he was hugely influential among musicians and uh he was he was key in, in launching a lot of uh, other other acts, uh, a lot of them very strange. You know? <laughs> he, he put the, the GTOs together, which was just a bunch of, of, uh, marginally underage groupies, put them together into a band. He, uh, he got, he gave Beefheart his start. Well, actually he knew Beefheart. They had gone to high school together in uh, Antelope Valley and, uh, <laughs> where their fathers were both brought most likely, uh, military personnel because, uh, that's the main main source of employment up there is the Edwards Air Force Base and, and other uh, military installations up there where they developed the stealth bomber and whatnot. And uh, so, yeah, he launched Beefheart. He launched a guy named, uh, by the name of, uh, what, what was his name? The crazy guy that tried to kill his mom. This guy, I mean, uh, yeah, you I mean, talk about questionable musical talent. Uh, yeah, he... He put a, what was that guy's name? I can't even remember. But anyway, yeah, he, he, uh, he put some very strange acts out there. <laughs> and, and, uh, but some of them that he put out actually did become big stars. Uh, Alice Cooper was, uh, one of his signings, which a lot of people don't realize that, that Alice Cooper, the Alice Cooper band was actually a a product of Laurel Canyon as well. And, uh, they started out as a psychedelic band, um uh, known as Naz. And um they were known uh they were known mostly for putting on a very theatrical show and not necessarily being the best musicians on the scene and and Zappa signed him and and, uh refashioned him as this uh sort of shock rock uh shock rocker that, you know, uh, that continues to inspire, you know, people like Marilyn Manson and whatnot to this day. So uh yeah, Zappa was responsible for putting some some very uh, unusual, uh, bringing some very unusual acts in, into, into the mainstream, or trying to bring them into the mainstream, anyway. Another very shadowy character uh, as part of our
0: play is, is Phil Spector, the producer, best known for his wall of sound, so-called. And not only is I mean, he, was in the news, I can't remember, can't remember how long ago it was, but last several years anyway, you know, like pulling guns on people again, and I'm not sure if he's in prison. I don't know what's going on with the guy, but obviously one sandwich short of a picnic. Now... He um had his team of session musicians called The Wrecking Crew. And besides his own personal life, the, his uh, session musicians were significant because they played on a lot of the records. Uh, we talked earlier about yeah. some, some of these guys not being very good. So these are the sort of guys who actually played on a lot of these hit records.
1: Yeah, they were the hired guns who, uh, who, yeah, who, who put the, uh, who, who provided a lot of the music of the sixties. You know, a lot, a lot of the records that, that we, that you hear on the radio in daily rotation to this day on classic rock stations are not necessarily being played by the people on the album covers. Uh, cause a lot of it was done in the early days, particularly, uh, by, by studio musicians, uh, specifically, particularly the wrecking crew who were this, regarded as like the best this crack team of studio musicians who could pretty much play anything and uh you know they recorded for the beach boys for the birds for the mamas and the papas for i mean just an array of uh of uh these bands the turtles and just uh you know a whole a whole a whole slew of uh of of artists or, or or bands that uh initially at least did not really have the musical chops to uh to lay down these these recordings in the studio and yeah so uh yeah the wrecking crew uh and i actually have a quote which didn't make it into the book from um from a a more contemporary drummer and I don't remember who it was uh um, some guy from some band from from quite a few years back who 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 said uh in an interview he said yeah i, I was I was absolutely floored to discover that my ten favorite drummers of all time were actually one guy <laughs> who had played all of these different drum parts for, for uh, all of these different bands. And uh, so, yeah, they uh, they provided a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the particularly the early in the early years. Um, they they were the guys who were actually uh, playing the, the music that was recorded on the albums. Phil Spector is in prison, by the way, which uh, which really kind of amazes me. It's it's very rare that um, a celebrity uh, murder case is successfully uh, prosecuted. You know, um, we we've kind of kind of become accustomed to uh, you know seeing people like OJ and Robert Blake and whatnot, uh, you know, uh, walk free. And uh, but Phil Spector was in fact uh, convicted, actually, of killing that. Uh, aspiring actors gal in the lobby of his home the entrance to his home i can't remember her name lana something but uh yeah he's he's uh he's doing time he's uh he's i'm not sure what prison he's in but he there was a picture of him actually that uh surfaced recently of uh him in prison and uh so yeah he's uh he he he's the rarity in hollywood that um that actually uh got convicted and sent away well
0: one guy who has served a lot of time is the notorious Charles Manson and he's a central, he's a central figure to all this because he he kind of he kind of bridges the worlds uh, you know the various scenes that come together here and a lot of people just know him because of being a cult leader and a convicted murderer but he was a musician and in fact if things had turned out differently he could have been one of the most significant musicians of that era bizarrely enough
1: yeah, that's the strange thing. And, and not just him, but various other, uh, members of his entourage, his family were, were very musically oriented. And, uh, and they were very much accepted as a part of the, you know, musical fraternity of Laurel Canyon. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, he, he lived for an entire summer, the summer of 68 with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, who, you know who who promoted him to anyone who would listen and introduced him to various other you know members of the uh, buffalo springfield and uh you know neil young was for one was very impressed with him and uh you know there were quotes from him just just uh just praising this guy in in the highest terms and and uh you know a number of people went to bat for him trying to get him uh, you know record contracts and you know he had connections to the mamas and the papas and and uh you know like i said to the beach boys and uh, buffalo springfield and canned heat and uh, a lot of these people knew him and at times jammed with him and partied with him you know the beach boys stole one of his songs and retitled it and uh, so he was very deeply enmeshed in that scene uh you know, it's enough so that when he came to trial, the uh, wit- the witness list that was uh, initially released included uh, names like John Phillips and and Mama Cass, who were initially slated to um, to uh, appear as witnesses in that trial, and uh, you know they apparently had the connections and the power to make sure that they weren't called and to keep that you know fairly low profile and you know to this day a lot of people don't don't know that 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 they uh that they were supposed to be called as, as witnesses in that trial so uh yeah Manson was very tightly integrated into that scene um and so was Bobby Bozley his uh lieutenant who uh who was doing time for the murder of uh, Gary Hinman fellow musician uh he was very much a part of the scene as well and lived for a time in in laurel canyon in an apartment not far from jim morrison and even uh filled the rhythm guitar spot in the band love for a while uh before they were signed when they were uh known as the grassroots um before they signed on as love uh he was he was their one of their uh rhythm guitarists so uh yeah Manson was very very tightly integrated into the scene and uh his fingerprints just show up all over Laurel Canyon and, and uh, the stories of these various uh people uh, overlap with him in various uh various interesting ways.
0: This isn't all just about music. We mentioned earlier there was political, you know, military, all sorts of murky sort of Venn diagram style overlaps happening here. And one other group that we should mention are the the Hollywood actors, or, you know, who would later, many of them go on to be... Well, they were getting established around this point, and some of them would go on to be major, major stars. And there was this group called the Young Turks and one of the most famous films to come out of this era, which most people of a certain age will have seen as Easy Rider. But you pick apart some of the individual stories of these either well-known or soon-to-be-very-well-known names... And they were partying and, and doing whatever else it was with a lot of these, uh, musicians and producers. And it's like one big soap opera, but the, the number of, uh, significant Hollywood people, even to me, knowing something about it, I was surprised at the, the names that were coming up.
1: Yeah, that's, um, uh, that's a whole nother aspect to the, the, uh, yeah, in addition to the, um, to all the, uh, the musicians, uh, uh, taking up residence in the canyon, a, uh, a contingent of, of young Hollywood actors, uh, known as the Young Turks also, uh, took up residence and regularly hung out, uh, in the canyon at the, at that time, including, uh, uh, Peter and Jane Fonda and, uh, Sharon Tate and, uh, uh Dennis Hopper, Bruce Dern, Jack Nicholson, um, Warren Beatty uh who else Minio, um and a few others and um they were all uh yeah they were all very tightly integrated into the scene as well and um you know as you mentioned the film Easy Rider was uh was very much a product of, of the Laurel Canyon scene and you know the two main characters were said to be based on on uh, two of the key figures in Laurel Canyon, uh, Dennis Hopper's character was uh, supposed to be based on uh, David Crosby, who uh, regularly rode through Laurel Canyon on his motorcycle in his fringed buckskin jacket, looking very much like uh, Hopper looked in the movie. And uh, Peter Fonda's character was um, was based on uh, Roger McGuinn of The Bird's you know, all most of the music was provided by Laurel Canyon musicians, Steppenwolf and, and the Birds and uh Fraternity of Man and I don't remember what else is on there, but but most of the uh music on there is, is uh from Laurel Canyon bands and, and some of the filming was even done in Laurel Canyon. So uh there was a very very uh very close relationship between young Hollywood and and, and these uh emerging musicians. And uh, and that's not the only movie there were there were several other movies countercultural movies of the 60s that uh were basically products of Laurel Canyon had the movie about the the uh, monkeys movie which was <laughs> which was co-written by Jack Nicholson of all people uh, a lot of people don't realize that that uh he was a fairly successful uh screenwriter uh before he made his name as an actor he also wrote the trip which was uh Hollywood's version of of an LSD trip and which starred uh, Peter Fonda and Bruce Dern and uh so all of these people were very and was filmed at a home in Laurel Canyon that the band love uh lived in at one time so there was very very close uh, relationship between um between these uh <laughs> the, the young actors and the, and the young musicians, all, all of whom would become these huge, huge, larger-than-life stars, uh, the ones that lived, anyway. And, um, and again, what you find if you go through the family background of uh, all of the quote-unquote young Turks, you again find that, that the vast majority of them are products of the, the military and intelligence complex. So you have that, you know, so you have, and you, so you have to add that to this, this whole uh, mix of coincidences that, that you also had this gathering of, of, uh, you know, young Hollywood talent there that also just happened to come from this same curious background and that, that, uh, and that were also hugely influential, uh, you know, um, in shaping the, the youth counterculture through, through these movies like Easy Rider and The Trip and whatnot.
0: Another interesting film produced around this time was Performance, which was directed by, co-directed uh, by Donald Camel, another figure with a sort of dark side to his life and a tragic end. And the film stars Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, and Edward Fox. And this came to my attention because Camel, after he eventually got another film made, it was called Demon Seed in 1977 and being a sci-fi buff. Caught my attention, but I was drawn back to performance. And in many ways, to me, that's almost like more typical of the atmosphere, the period that we're talking about, you know, dark, dangerous, un- you know, worlds and underworlds mixing with each other, um, all sorts of like cloak and dagger stuff going on. And of course, the Rolling Stones have got a role in this as well. You know, we think of the events of Hyde Park and Altamont. That came in many people's minds to signal, you know, the, the end of the summer of love or whatever and their involvement with the Hells Angels. But as I say, for me, that was like, well, this is almost more capturing the moods than any kind of overly optimistic, you know, documentary might have at the time. I'm thinking of some of the, the festivals, festival footage at the time where you see people rolling around in the mud and flinging flowers in the air and everybody looks to be having a royally great time. And the underbelly of all this is is much more important.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean there was a very, yeah, very 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 dark uh underbelly which yeah, which which somewhat came to the surface at uh, Altamont where uh I think like four people died or something. The one the one that's remembered of course is Meredith Hunter who was uh who was uh, stabbed to death right in front of the stage by members of the Hell's Angels who had been hired as a curiously enough as a security detail. Um you know, it's weird that you know the Hells Angels are are, are often thought of as part of the the whole uh, you know youth hippie counterculture of the 1960s. But they, I mean, they couldn't have been more diametrically opposed to to the hippies. Actually, you know, and the Hells Angels were, were very right wing, authoritarian you know type uh, type groups, and uh, that that were very much at odds with. Uh, with the hippies and the anti-war movement and, and yet they were, you know, brought in uh, to serve as a security detail. And and then everyone was, was shocked when, uh, when things went bad, you know, but, um, you know, e- even Woodstock, you know I mean? There was a dark side to that, you know I mean? The, 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 the image that, that most people have is of this, this great love fest of, you know, three days of music and, and, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, everybody doing their own thing and just, uh, just this great, wonderful, uh, social experiment. But, you know, from people that I've talked to, the reality was quite different. Um, you know, the, the people were, the place was way overbooked. It had way more people there than, than, uh, could be reasonably accommodated. The, they did not have facilities to, to serve all of these people. There were serious, you know, bathroom shortages, which resulted in, you know, overflowing, toilets and raw sewage flowing out and you know these people were basically trapped a lot of them had to abandon their cars and couldn't get out of there even if they wanted to and and they get there and they're deprived of sleep and uh you know for days on end and they're wallowing in the mud and uh you know there's food shortages there's there's sanitation issues and uh there's you know there's uh LSD being freely distributed, whether you want it or not, you know. And uh, I, don't, I don't imagine that it that it that it was necessarily an overwhelmingly positive experience for everyone that attended there, um, but uh, certainly not as dark as as, uh, as uh, the the uh, Rolling Stones fiasco at Altamont.
0: Well, the picture you paint sounds more like uh, World War One, you know, on acid. <laughs>
1: yeah the, the ultimate one was was not good in any way i mean right from the beginning it just had a very very dark vibe to it and uh and you know ultimately resulted in, in a very high profile death on film of uh, of meredith hunter which uh can still be seen to this day in the the rolling stones documentary film give me shelter which is Arguably the most widely circulated snuff film of all time, <laughs> I would say, uh, where you have an actual on-screen murder that's uh, you know been in the movie for however many years now.
0: Chapter three of your book is essentially a laundry list of deaths, uh, many of them with you know under suspicious circumstances or some other sort of lack of a satisfactory explanation. But there were some high-profile deaths that took place that weren't. Um, in and around Laurel Canyon. I mean, for example, John Lennon. We'd have to mention on, in, in this context here, especially when we start to think about military, industrial involvement, and what have you, and you know, dark, you know, black ops, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the, the the psyop element in in some of this on the on, you know on the general public. And of course, you had Jim Morrison dying in Paris, uh, Hendrix, Keith Moon, Cass Elliott dying in the UK. But these are these are all related all linked back in the sort of family tree of um of of death
1: yeah very much so i mean it was it's amazing Uh, and that's another you know a place where there's just a huge disconnect between you know the peace love and understanding vibe and flowers in the hair that we're supposed to associate with that scene and the uh The real backdrop which was just incredibly bloody and violent and uh, so many people came to curious ends uh either people actually in laurel canyon uh were like the wonderland uh, quadruple murder was committed or to people uh very closely connected uh to laurel canyon uh which includes the manson murders and all of the deaths you mentioned and and graham parsons and uh just a whole slew of people, uh, wives and girlfriends were vulnerable. Uh, Jackson Brown's wife, uh, came to an untimely end at a very early age as did, uh, David Crosby's girlfriend, I believe it was, uh, Graham Nash's girlfriend. Um, and you know, some of these, uh, and then And then there was you know the murders that were actually committed in Laurel Canyon, like silent film star Ramon Navarro, uh, Salminio killed right at the uh, base of Laurel Canyon, Inger Stevens, a starlet from bygone era who uh, was found dead in her home, and uh, a couple bodies that were just dumped there in laurel canyon and uh, just an incredible amount of blood flowing out of a canyon that was supposed to epitomize you know peace love and understanding
0: have you done an actual head count in terms i mean obviously their deaths were happening overlapping with the beginning of the period you talk about and afterwards but just in in the, the scene set out in your book, did you actually do at any point get an impression of how many deaths you documented? You know,
1: was it, I, I would say maybe I I don't know, probably a hundred. I know there's a lot. I know that there's just a, a, just a staggering number of people who, uh, you know, and as I, as, as I mentioned, including the two, the two most famed, uh, mass murders in the history of the city, the, the man, the four, vic- there are five victims that, uh, at, uh, uh, the Tate Polanski residence and, um, the four victims in, in the Wonderland home, uh, all directly connected to the scene. And, uh, as Michael, uh, Walker pointed out, those, those kind of provided the, the bookends to that era, the Manson murders in 69 and then the Wonderland murders in, I think it was 80. And, uh, but in between there, there was just an amazing array. <laughs> Of, of other murders are, are oftentimes what appeared to be murders. Sometimes they were listed as murders, sometimes not. But uh, deaths under very suspicious and violent circumstances uh, were, were just way, way too frequent, uh, you know, uh, in connection to that scene.
0: Yeah, I mean, as we draw things to a close for today, uh, Dave will just throw in the, in the epilogue to your book, you tie in, Uh, All of this with your previous book that you'd written called Program to Kill and you just making observations about everything that you'd written in this book and the overlap with California and the significance of serial killers in that area around that time, just what a concentration it was. You know, if you put up a map of the USA and start sticking pens in it and just seeing where they clustered, you know, it was like very odd.
1: Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, and uh yeah, the epilogue is uh yeah, primarily about uh, Rodney Alcala, the so-called dating game killer who uh who also had very curious uh, connections to that uh, scene. You know, his first alleged victim was a a very young girl who was a uh, the daughter of a record company executive who was living at the Chateau Marmont Hotel alongside various rock stars. Um and then uh his, one of his later victims was dumped at the uh the north mouth of uh, Laurel Canyon uh, very near the uh, Marlon Brando and and Jack Nicholson estates and and in between there he bumped into numerous uh people connected to Laurel Canyon uh he went to UCLA film school At the same time as uh, Jim Morrison and Ray Manzarek, he took a uh, film class in New York uh, taught by Roman Um One of his crimes was uh, investigated by this police detective who just happened to be the son of a uh, prime suspect in the Black Dahlia murders who was very closely connected to the mamas and the papas. And, uh, he just had this, this very strange, uh, web of, uh, connections between him and, uh, various people and places in that scene. So, um, so in addition to Charles Manson, you know, prowling around, you had, you had a second guy who, who would later be regarded as a, uh, a very prolific serial killer who was, um, you know, also, uh, uh plying that, that his trade at that time. And, uh, and what I discovered is, is that that's, that, that, that's a, that's kind of a common theme. Uh, you know, the, the Laurel Canyon scene kind of came on the heels of the, the folk rock scene, which was largely centered in, uh, in Cambridge, um, which also had its own resident serial killer at, operating at that very time in the form of, uh, Albert DeSalvo, aka the Boston Strangler. And if you fast forward to like the Seattle scene, you find that uh concurrent with that, you had this guy who would be known as the Green River Killer. So uh serial killers and rock scenes seemed <laughs> seem to uh <laughs> seem seemed to go together for some reason. Uh very curious. And you mentioned
0: the Chateau Marmont um hotel there, which, you know, from my reading scene of um a lot of Led Zeppelin's debauchery and it reminded me we've not even had time to talk about the occult and bizarre rituals and all of this if people want to read about that they're just going to have to get your book
1: uh, yeah I guess so yeah the yeah, Ch- Chateau Marmont is uh, notorious it has been for many many years is the scene of uh, various scenes of debauchery and, and the death site of, of John Belushi where he you know died uh, after being uh, supposedly administered a speedball by uh, this Kathy Smith, who, who, who of course, was a part of the Laurel Canyon scene and and a part of Gene Clark of the Birds' uh, entourage for a while. And um, and the Chateau is right at the mouth of Laurel Canyon and and, uh, was frequently home to bands that were in L.A. uh, while they were touring. It was a very, very popular destination in the scene of all kinds of uh, sordid goings-on, to say the least. Um, yeah, very, very notorious place, very, very expensive, very high end place, but, uh, known for, uh, known for being, uh, the scene of a lot of, uh, of depraved, uh, rock star debauchery to say the least.
0: Well, if I was to describe your, your book in four words, I think it would be never a dull moment. But that's, a, <laughs> <laughs> that's available widely. This side of the pond, you're, I mean, everyone can get it online, not a problem, but, Tell folks uh, if you've got a website you want to share or you know any other anything you're working on have done just anything you want to put out there
1: yeah people have told me that it's a very addictive read and it's hard to put down once you pick it up which is which is hugely flattering uh, you know it's, it's very very gratifying to, to hear stuff like that because I put a lot of time and work into it but uh, anyway my website is at uh, ww.. Dave'sWeb.CNCHost.Com, which is kind of a mouthful. It's probably easier to find if you just Google my name, either Dave McGowan or or David McGowan. Uh, it should come up at the top of the list. It's the the website is officially known as the Center for an Informed America, and um, that is where uh, all of my unpublished work is. Basically, there. Are, it's where Laurel Canyon started. Most, most of my books began as a series of web posts and then sort of transformed into books, uh, Laurel Canyon being the latest. But there are all kinds of other uh, book length, um, book length uh, series of web posts on there on 911 and uh, I don't know, just all, all kinds of stuff. All, lots and lots of freely available uh, information there. It's a 100% free site. And uh, I am uh, offering my my latest book uh, for sale. You'll see the links on the page to an order page. Um, there's both a domestic and an international order page for anyone who is interested in uh, ordering a signed copy of my book, which uh, is available for a very good price here in America. Unfortunately, it's quite a bit higher for your readers there in the UK due to the... Uh, very high cost of international shipping. I think it cost me like 15 bucks or something like that to to ship a book over there. So it almost doubles the price of the uh, of the book. But if somebody really, really wants a signed copy, um, that's where they can get them. And uh, if not, then just enjoy all the other uh, stuff that that's there available. And um, yeah, I guess that's about all I
0: got. Cool. Excellent. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. I greatly enjoyed it, and I hope to talk to you again.
0: Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, check out the website, which is legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including politics and economics, energy and environment, culture, spirituality, history, and the nature of reality. You can also browse and buy a range of publications from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Based on current audience numbers, if everyone who tuned in donated just five pence per show, that's about eight cents US, this could become a full-time, fully funded operation, offering more and more often. During October 2014, over 50,000 of you streamed, or downloaded at least one show. Total donations were seven UK pounds, which currently converts to about eleven dollars US. Whether you listen, donate, or do both, I greatly appreciate your support. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.